The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm very happy to be back in our studios. Last week we were broadcasting live from Austin, which was a blast, and uh, and now we're back in our, our home studios. And I want to give a quick shout-out to uh, Taylor McElhenney, who is joining me live today in the studio. She is my uh, my right hand, our, our program coordinator and, and our website manager, and I couldn't do anything without her. So thanks for joining me. Um, we're also going to have uh, Jocelyn Ewart is joining us at the top of the show today. And for all you millennials out there, she's going to be talking about uh, wealth management for millennials. And, and before we get started, I want to quickly give you our call-in number, which is 888-329-3306 if you're listening and you'd like to call in with a question. Um, and waiting in the wings is our very special guest today. Her name is Lisa Copeland, and Lisa will be joining us uh, just after Jocelyn and, and talking about um, her career in the automotive industry. Lisa is a keynote speaker, a best-selling author, uh, an award-winning sales strategist, and a principal of a automotive dealership. Um, so we're going to have uh, a great show this afternoon talking to Lisa Copeland. But first, uh, I want to welcome Jocelyn to the show. Hi, Jocelyn. Great to be here. Good to have you. And you're, I don't see you uh, across from me today, but this works. <laughs> <laughs> the, the miracle of modern technology. That's right. So I understand you, you're going to be giving us some great information today and specifically for millennials. So um, I hope my two children are listening. <laughs> I, I hope so, too, and I hope we get some uh, calls uh, from listeners uh, with their stories about their successes and questions that they may have. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I wrote a book, and Balancing Act Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women, and one of the uh, consequences of that is I'm getting lots and lots of questions about what tips I might offer to millennials. And interestingly, as I was writing, uh, a change occurred. When I started two years ago, baby boomers were the largest uh, segment of our population, and now the tide has turned and millennials are the largest segment of our population. So I'm going to start by introducing five tips, and then I'll circle back and give a little bit more information. Okay. Uh, millennial women are known for being highly ambitious, educated, and dedicated to what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And they work hard. So first and foremost, my first tip is that millennial women need to take charge of their money, whether they earn it, inherit it, or receive a substantial divorce settlement at some point. They need to take responsibility for their money. Tip number two is to avoid what I like to call the just 
sign here, honey syndrome. Avoid mm-hmm. that. Right. Does that still happen today? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll, I'll circle back to that in a minute. Okay. Uh, more, more than you would think. Uh, tip number three is to consider the benefits of finding a competent financial advisor to help you achieve what's important to you. Tip number four is to make a spending plan because even with the best advisor, if you're not quite sure where your money is going, your expenses you could be in for some very unpleasant surprises down the road. And tip number five is to get started. So now I'm going to circle back, Susan, and answer the question you asked. Is this still happening today? Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to women taking charge of their money, I have been working as a certified financial planner professional for the past 15 years, and the number one mistake I see women make is to deflect their financial decision-making responsibility to a man, whether their father, another male family member, or, and this is often the most damaging of all, to their love interest. No matter how gorgeous, sexy, charming, or authoritative, <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee that the spouse or life partner that a millennial has will not do a better job of managing their money than they will. Right. And time and again, I've witnessed this special person in her life dissipate, spend in ways not aligned with her values, and often just plain take her wealth while she stands on the sidelines wanting affection and rationalizing she doesn't really know enough to make her own choices. And I'm here to say on the show, at the start of the show, that such rationalizations are past thinking. We're in the 21st century, and... All millennial women, as a powerful force to be reckoned with, do know what to do or can avail themselves of the resources they need to figure out what to do so they can fulfill their values, needs, and interests and flat out avoid losing uh, what they've earned. So that leads me back, circles me back to the tip number two, which is avoid the just sign here honey syndrome, which does still happen today. And when it comes to tip number three, to find a competent wealth advisor, I have a couple of guidelines, and a good starting place is to go to cfp.net. This is the website for certified financial planner practitioners, and when you go to that website, you will be able to find professionals in your area And I would also encourage anyone who does identify a number of professionals to interview, when you you have this initial consult, make sure that you feel comfortable. Take note of whether the professionals you are interviewing listen to you, educate you as the conversation unfolds, and whether they have a long-term perspective that focuses on you. If all these advisors who you are considering want to do is talk about their great investment products, I encourage you to watch out because long-term financial success is built upon what you need and what's important to you. It's not built on a special product. Uh, The spending plan, tip number four. I have learned over and over working with clients that – It's not good to assume you know where your money is going. You need to be precise, have that spending plan written down, 
what comes in, what goes out. And I believe that especially women, having that budget, having that spending plan and knowing where your money is gives you a sense of confidence and command over your personal finances. And as I said, tip number five is to get started. No matter where your first step is taken, no matter what your former experience, I encourage all millennial women to muster their courage and begin taking charge of their personal finances now. Even baby steps, I believe, will likely result in better better than ever tomorrows. And if you need to know where to start, the how-to guide, complete with exercises, either the book, Balancing Act, Wealth Management, Straight Talk for Women, or uh, go to the website, balancingactbook.com. And remember, if you use the how-to guide, the $14.95 that costs you, 100% of that goes to a scholarship fund at Temple University to help students with financial need. So it's a win-win all around. And Susan, I hope your millennials call in. I hope they get started and really take those first steps towards financial success. I hope so too, Jocelyn. And it's always good advice coming from you. I think it was ironic that Taylor joined me in the studio today. She is a millennial and she's out um, crushing it, I will say, as, as I'm getting ready to invite my guest on the show. Um, and it it is very good tips. The last thing I think that one of the best things I think we can always get them to do is just start some kind of a savings account from from the very beginning, even if they don't have enough, um, you know, to t- to put in there. If they if they start it and put a little bit in at a time, um, that's a great easy first step. Absolutely, you yep. got to get started. All right, Jocelyn, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next month. That sounds fabulous. Have a great day. And now I am thrilled to uh, introduce my guest for this afternoon, who is um, really an incredible woman with an amazing story about um, working in an industry that was predominantly a male industry and doing it well, really proving that women can um, absolutely go into any field they want. Again, her name is Lisa Copeland, and Lisa is a keynote speaker. She is a best-selling author. Uh, an award-winning sales strategist, principal of an automotive dealership, and recently named CMO of EBW 2020, which is an organization um, looking to empower a billion women by 2020. Lisa Copeland, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. And I want to give a shout-out to Jocelyn. Like, I took down all the notes. So I think her financial advice was great for all women, not just millennial Yes. She definitely has some good pointers out there. So She does. What a great show. Yeah. Yeah, she does. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll forward you her book as well because it is, I love the title, you know, Straight Talk for Women. Um, she uh-huh. has a lot of great advice in there that's just really easy to, to comprehend, and she shares stories uh, similar to, to what you've done. what women need. That's yes, right. women need straight talk. I love we that. We do. We do. Straight talk and visuals. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I always need visuals. Um, so listen, I want to get right into um, to our interview with you. And, uh, you know, you and I spoke a little bit this afternoon before the show, and I learned a little bit more about you. Um, but for the listeners, I want to just give them a quick sense of your, your background and your upbringing and where this success all began. Um, and I understand sure. you grew up in California, and mm-hmm. um, mom was a Ph.D., and your dad was an entrepreneur. So um, yeah. 
those are two great uh, role models to uh, to kind of get started and, and instill in you a, a great work ethic. Um, talk about those years growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, I can just always remember that, um, you know, my mom, my mom went back to school late in life and worked really hard to get her Ph.D. And um, we, we were really proud of that accomplishment, you know, raising two kids and then um, deciding later in life to get her Ph.D. And the thing I, I remember the most about my dad growing up is that, you know, he was always working. You know, he was always in he, he worked during the day, but then, you know, he would sit in his office at night. And that was before the Internet. But he was always reading and researching and networking and you know, and, and I always thought, wow, that's really cool. Well, I think it might have even annoyed my mom sometimes, but, it, you know, it was the space that he loved, which was, you know, thinking about business and thinking about deals. And I've become him. <laughs> because I <laughs> think I told you earlier happens. today. Yep. Yes. I'm, I told you earlier today, you know, people say, what are your hobbies? And I'm like, does shopping count? And if, if, if that answer is no. <laughs> Then honestly, my hobbies are research and, and, and working with people and doing deals. And so, like, I literally go to the office all day long. And then, of course, my children are grown. And so I end up in my office at night, you know, researching, watching videos on great women influencers and, and businesses. And so um, I, I'm kind of my dad all over again. I just see myself sitting in that office at night doing that. And it's because I love it. And so now I really think back on how much he loved what he did and I really love what I do. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a great thing. As long as when you're working that hard and and you're really um, kind of motivated by your own curiosity and wanting to continue to learn, um, as long as it, it is making you happy, that is a great thing. Um, you know, we yeah. talk a lot about on this show about kind of overworking and, and being stressed out. Um, it doesn't sound to me like that was ever the case with you. Um, although, you know, we'll talk a little bit about. One of the things I think you're, you're trying to do as you've gotten older and, and your career is to really take time maybe to um, uh, step away from the work maybe. And it's something you have to kind of force yourself to do. Yeah. 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 Um, you use the word rebel um, describing your, your younger <laughs> self. And that could be, you know, that could be good and that oh. could be bad. Um, but uh, frankly, I love 16-year-old girls who are rebels, I think, at de- typically end up doing some some great things but tell me how that um that has been a part of who you are that that rebel side how does that played into um all of the different careers that you've had yeah thank you i I like that i I, I, i've I've never put that together before so thank you but um yeah you know i was that 16 year old and you know when i was 16 i wished i was 26 and i wanted to be able to do all the things that the older people did, and sometimes I went and did them without permission, and I probably should leave it at that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, I wrote a chapter in a book years ago, and I'm pulling it back to that. And the name of the chapter it was a book by Sandra Yancey, the founder of eWomen, and I was one of the contributors. But um, I named the chapter Color Outside the Lines. And I think that that's kind of been a theme since I was 16 years old to where I am today, is that I've always been that person who's willing to color outside the lines. And um, I'm very curious by nature. So I think that, that but, but I don't stay very curious when I'm inside the lines. But when I'm outside the lines, it's like I thrive. And so a lot of times, that isn't really good when you're 16 because the lines are a little different. But mm-hmm. in business <laughs> and in life as an adult, um, it, has, it has done well for me because I am, you know, I'm, I am uh, I'm somebody who will take chances. I'm somebody who will 
color outside the lines and just really see what else is out there um, other than just the status quo. Yeah. And so, um, but thank you for tying the whole rebel thing to my life and my career at 16 years old. <laughs> well, I think it's a huge bow for me. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you know what? I think it can, it can definitely be um, a positive. It certainly plays into, you know, what your, your current book, Crushing Mediocrity, is really about, yes. you know, um, going beyond what is the norm. So I think that makes a lot of sense and it, it really kind of ties everything together. Um, and we're going to talk about the book, but I wanted to, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the early years. You know, prior to your um, having your own automotive dealership, you worked mm-hmm. in, in several industries. You worked in yeah. retail and insurance and, and the mortgage industry. And my, my first question is. So throughout all of those years, was there um, a sense in you that, you know, this isn't quite what I want to be doing? You were learning and you were successful, but did you have a sense Mm -hmm. this isn't really where I want to to stay or end up? You know, not really. So I actually started in the automotive industry. Um, I started selling cars. And um, so that's, you know, when I was about 21. And so that was my first entree into sales. You know, when I was in college, I, I, I went to school for fashion. And so when I was in college, I would, you know, I worked at the mall and I sold skirts. And, you know, what I found, and, and I tell this to people, you know, there, there are two kinds of salespeople. There are people that are super pushy, and then there are people that love people, mm-hmm. and they love serving people. And I, I fell into that category of is that I loved people. So through a bunch of different circumstances, one of them included in 1986, I wrecked my car and um, I had not been paying my car insurance because I had been a fashion major and I loved living in Dallas in clothes and things like that. I, I, I found myself without transportation in Dallas, Texas. And so I had found out through a friend that I could sell cars and they, they, they give you a free car to drive. Oh, there so you go. <laughs> I, well, so that's really, you know, so I always say my automotive uh, in my automotive career started out by accident, okay. literally. For practical and, reasons. Yes, for practical reasons and because of an accident. And mm. so um, I went into the dealership. It was the number one store in the country at the time. I didn't really know all of that because I had no knowledge of the auto industry. I just knew that you got a free car, and I knew that I could sell. And so I went through about six interviews. Um, they turned me down six times. And I finally, I mean, I just kept going back. And they, I guess the sales manager felt sorry for me. He finally gave me a job. But he said, you've got 30 days. And you better sell cars. And he said, uh, I'm going to tell you three things. He said, stay away from the water fountain. Um, you, know, you, you know, you need to do everything I tell you to do. And you better sell a bunch of cars. And I was like, yes, sir. Do I get my new, do I get my car to drive starting today? And, you know, of course I did. And, yeah. Were you the first woman to apply there? No, okay. no. But, um, okay. but at one point, um, I was, at many given times during my two years there, I was the only woman in sales. Every now and then another gal would come in, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't make the cut. Okay. And so, you know, and, but I don't think I would have either if it wasn't for the fact I had to have that car to drive yeah. because it was a really rough and tumble business. I remember one time they actually put, this is no joke, they put a baby alligator in my desk alive. 
What? Yes, true story. I mean, they, they did so many things. You know, they, you know, I would sell a car and then, you know, somebody would move the car that I sold. I'd go out to look for it, to deliver it, and they moved it. This is a giant dealership in Dallas, biggest in the country. They were trying to I mean, rattle you? Is uh-huh. that- wow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Wow. But, but, but because of my tenacity and, and my need for that car, I just knew I could never give up. And so I stuck with selling for a couple of years, and then I got promoted into the finance department, which is really where I spent the majority at that time of my automotive career. And so I stayed in the car business the first time for a total of about 10 years. Um, I'd gotten married, I'd had kids, and I realized that working those kind of retail hours weren't really conducive to trying to raise young children. Mm. So I say all the time, I left the car business because I had to, and I was able to come back because I wanted to. I, you know, I really loved the business. So I stayed home for about 30 days, and a friend of mine who ran a big bank in Dallas called me, and he said, you should be in the mortgage business. Like, you understand finance. That's what you do in the automotive industry. Why don't you get in the mortgage business? So I did. I did very well, and after the first year, I thought I could just start my own mortgage company, and I did, Um, and that was in, oh my gosh, I I can't remember the year, but about 10 years, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe, 22, Yeah. and it morphed into a couple. I'd had partners at one point, but um, in in the year 2000, I incorporated uh, Austin Mortgage Associates, and uh, it's solely owned by myself and my husband, and I'm proud to say that it's still in business today and doing great. Um, so again, that was my entrepreneurial spirit. I was working really hard for someone else and producing a lot, and I thought, why the heck can I do this for myself? And we did. And then, and then during that time, I decided, well, um, if we've got a successful mortgage company, why are we not an insurance company also, like providing homeowners insurance, since we we're always referring it out. So I started an insurance company in financial services. I was a farmer's insurance agent. And we did that for a couple of years. And I ended up selling the agency off because um, I just didn't, uh, I didn't care for it as much. And so, you know, I mean, so that's just, that's kind of how things come to me. And then in the middle of all of that, I decided to, in the year 2007 or eight, I believe, that I would use my fashion roots and I opened up a, a very nice, uh, boutique in Round Rock, Texas. It was called Enjoy, E-N-J-O-I. I don't think the Philadelphia listeners will know, but uh, my friends online do. And um, it was a high-end women's uh, boutique. And I did that for a few years. So I had a really great wardrobe. And um, and so, you know, I mean, I've just morphed through all of these things. Um, and so it's been a great career, but I look at how, how entrepreneurism has driven me through my career. It's like, you know, I want to do this job, but I want to do it for myself. Mm, right. And then about and then and then about seven years ago, yeah, about seven years ago, I was offered the opportunity to come back into the automotive industry. Um, and about six years ago, coming back into the auto industry, because I could, both of my kids, one was out of college, one was a senior in college, um, I had the opportunity to be one of the dealers in the country that could relaunch the Fiat brand to America. And so that kind of um, catapulted me into being a, uh, a dealer principal. And, you know, as, as things would go, um, we ended up breaking the world sales record in 12. And um, um, we were the number one Fiat Alfa Romeo dealer. In fact, I sold my interest in the store in March. Mm-hmm. But to, to date, I'm super proud of the team that's still intact because 
we are still the number one uh, Fiat Alfa Romeo dealer in um, NAFTA since the brand remerged to America back in 2010. So it's a crazy ride, but I mean, it's all been driven by the spirit of entrepreneurism. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lisa, one of my favorite stories from your book was um, the story about Sergio, and help me if I pronounce his last name wrong, Marchioni. Is that correct? You did good. Okay. That's correct. Uh, that's because yeah. I married an Italian. Um, Sergio <laughs> Marchioni. Um, so in 2015, um, I, I want the listeners to understand your level of success. You, uh, you won the FCA's highest honor, the Walter P. Chrysler Award for Sales yeah. and yeah. Service Excellence. And I will say, you know, those two words, um, excellence and sales, I think, you know, are a big part of you. And so as the story goes, um, you said, to your colleagues, or I guess the CEO um, of, Fiat. of Fiat, that you mm-hmm. could sell 100 cars in a month. And and I love mm-hmm. that you just you just put that challenge on yourself. No one asked you to do that. You just said, you know what? No. I can do it. I'm going to do it. And if I do, yeah. um, I expect Sergio Marchioni, the CEO of Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, to come and visit us here at our showroom. Can you tell the story? You'll tell the story better than I did, but I love that story for so many reasons that you, number one, you know, you just decided to challenge yourself with that. You, of course, did it. You sold more than 100, and for the first time ever, he uh, came to a dealership. Yes. Well, and and, and I I want to give credit to my team because, obviously, the team was not near as excited about the bet as as I was, but (laughs) I was very good friends. Uh, so Mr. Marchioni is the chairman of the board of Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Ram. So the magnitude of this man, and that's just North America. He holds those same chairman positions in Italy. So Mr. Marchioni, if you're in the automotive industry, is somebody who is, he's an icon. I mean, an icon. And so um, I was such a fan of how he had turned around um, the Chrysler Corporation, did the acquisition by Fiat, and then Chrysler became Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, including Maserati and Ferrari and all of that. So anyways, I was a huge fan of this man, and I knew that this being this little dealer in Austin, Texas, that I would never have the opportunity to meet him. And so um, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to meet this man. And so the chairman or the CEO of the Fiat brand alone was a very good friend of mine, and and, and we were always the top producing dealer in the country, so we had a great relationship. And so I said to him one night at sales close, I said, so what is the number to hit? What's that threshold number that no one's ever done uh, in Fiat world? And um, he said 100. And at that time, we only had one car to sell. We had that little two-door suite hatchback. And um, and we were in a shopping center in Austin, Texas, a 6,000-square-foot facility. So, I mean, the story's even better. And so um, I said, so if we sold a hundred cars in a month, I said, would I get to meet Mr. Marchioni? And he said, yeah, if you sell hundred cars in a month, I absolutely. <laughs> I'll fly you there to laughing. see him. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. He was laughing. He's like, that's not happening. And I said, <laughs> well, I said, you know, what a goal that would be. I said, like, I'm not joking. Like, can we make a bet? And he said, sure. So in, in all, in full disclosure, the first month we only sold 92. And he called me at the end of the month, and he said, oh, my God, congratulations. You're the number one store in the country again, and 92 cars, great effort. And I was devastated. And I said, Tim, um, I, need, I need one more month on this bet. And I said, I, said, I have to meet Mr. Marchioni, and the team's geared up for it and all of that. And he said, well, um, you don't even have the inventory to be able to do it. 
you know, cause, because uh, the factories can look at what the inventories you, are, you have in stock are. And I didn't. And so God love my Fiat dealers around the country. I started calling them and buying up their inventory. And the next month I put the team on it. And what I didn't know in the background is that Tim had not told Mr. Marchione about the bet because he thought it would never happen. Um, you know, Mr. Marchione is kind of a, a cross between Jesus and Bono. That's the best way I know <laughs> how to describe him in the automotive industry. Okay. So, you know, yeah. So, so like nobody wanted to go to him to say that the, that, that one, that one brand CEO had made a bet with a dealer in Austin, Texas. Well, and why, so I, anyways, think, I think they should have, I mean, that's the, to me, oh, I think that's the greatest story terrified. ever. Oh. oh my gosh. They were so terrified. So the next month. You know, Tim, you know, um, you know we, we have to report our sales to the factory. And I was starting to figure out in the middle of the month that, that Tim really didn't want me to hit or my team to hit that 100 number. So I did not report all the sales. So the day before sales closed, he called me and he said, Lisa, um, where are you at? You look like you've only sold about 60 cars because this is the last month I'm extending this bet. You're done. And uh, he said, so where are you going to end up? And this is funny. And Tim and I laugh about it to this day. And I say, I told him, I said, Tim. You need to tell Mr. Marchione to gas up the G5. He's coming to Texas. <laughs> and he was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah, um, we're at 99 right now, and I have another 10, 10 car deals that we're going to put together before tomorrow night. Oh, my close. gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and he said, he said, so you're going to go to 109. And I said, we are. And um, he said, who have you told about this bet? And I'll never forget. I said, automotive news, which I did. And he said, so he had the whole Chrysler PR team calling Automotive News saying, you cannot break this story. You cannot break it. And Automotive News called me and they said, we have just been put on gag order. And I said, why? And they said, because Marchione doesn't know and nobody wants him to read it in, in, the, tra- in the trade press. And so anyway, funny story, but Mr. Marchione, what a sweet man. I mean, what a sweet man. And Tim waited a couple, like a week and a half to even tell him, which he apologized for, Mr. Marchione did, but... He came to my dealership. It was a motorcade, international press corps, because he really is a big deal. And, wow. um, yeah, he was so gracious. But, Where's that um, picture, Lisa, of the two of you? Oh, it's – oh, my gosh, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, on my Lisa Copeland Facebook page. It's on – I mean, um, the, the, I'm the thinking it's like an, having an award at home. Do you keep it somewhere special? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, he ended, up, he ended up building me a custom-made pink Fiat. And it's uh, it's it's the Lisa Copeland edition, oh, VIN number zero so zero cool. one. That's awesome. Yes, because he was so grateful that I had requested him. Yeah. So, what a nice man, and, and it's just an experience I'll never forget. But ladies who are listening, I'm going to tell you this lesson I learned from it: don't be afraid to ask. Make the bet, because because what I knew is, is that I'd said it out loud, and I'd done it in such a big way, including telling Automotive News, which is like the Wall Street Journal of the automotive industry that I knew we had to hit it. I knew I would not stop until we did it. And so, you know, these great lofty goals that, that you have, ladies, either in life or in business, say them out loud and do something big that, that it holds you accountable. Right. Because I was held accountable to hitting that number. And by goodness, we were going to hit it no matter what because it was that important. And so that was my life lesson is that you have to ask, number one, make the bets in life, whatever they are. And then tell somebody to hold you accountable and then and then just run as hard as you can to the finish line. Yeah. And um, a lot of times it'll work out for you. And it certainly worked out for me after meeting Mr. Marchione. Mm, I love that story. It's a great story. Thank you. Um, listen, Thank Lisa, you. we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. Okay. And when we come back, I want to talk about um, a very defining moment for you. 
um, with mm. regard to your son. We'll be right back. Yeah. Okay. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm Jocelyn Ewart, founding principal of Entrust Financial in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and it is my pleasure to share financial tips with you during my monthly segment on Women to Watch. I hope you are a regular listener like I am and that you are finding the personal finance tips I provide helpful. Some of the topics we have discussed so far this year are how to get organized, how to help your children learn good money habits, how to create that all-important travel budget, and what steps are needed as you prepare for retirement. Now I have truly exciting news for you, news you can share with your family and friends. As a veteran certified financial planner professional, I just published my first book, Balancing Act, Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. It is filled with inspiring real case studies to help you and other women move past fear, build confidence, and make the right decisions without financial concerns. Just go to Amazon.com to purchase your copy. And please, write a review for Balancing Act Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. I look forward to reading it. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I would just want to give out our uh, website address so that you can check out our podcast and and all of the good stuff happening with Women to Watch. Go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well, where we put some wonderful um, anecdotes and pictures and um, great things from all of our guests. I'm joined this afternoon uh, by Lisa Copeland. Again, Lisa is a keynote speaker. She is a best-selling author, um, an award-winning sales strategist, principal of an automotive dealership, and now has recently taken on the role of CMO at EBW 2020. And uh, Lisa, I wanted to talk about something that I believe is, was really a defining moment for you in your life where you mm-hmm. learned um, a lesson that you that ha- really has stayed with you. Um, and that was uh, about seven years ago when you got a phone call, uh, the worst mm-hmm. phone call a parent can receive, that your son had been in an accident. And um, yeah. I, I really want 
you to talk to the listeners about what it was, first of all, what, what happened, and then what the doctor sure. said to you that was kind of a, a defining moment. Yeah, it was. So I, we got, I mean, I just, I tear up even thinking about it. Um, we, um, we got that phone call that parents get in the middle of the night, uh, two or three o'clock in the morning, um, the police and, um, the hospital, the ER, that they've got our son in the emergency room that he'd been in an accident. Um, what it really was is he had been to a party and was horsing around and was, um, wrestling and, Somebody picked him up and literally uh, threw him on his head. And you have to know my sonny, six foot four, big muscular kid. That was not an easy feat to do. And um, so they had, they had brought him in because he was unconscious at that point. Uh, by the time we had gotten to the hospital, um, he was conscious. Um, but when we got there and we were just, you know, thank, praying, thank you, God, that he's alive and everything is good, um, we got into the room. And um, we were met by one of the heads of uh, neurology um, at the hospital. And uh, our son was, you know, he was kind of coherent. So I was trying to talk to him. So we didn't realize the magnitude of the accident yet. And um, that's when the doctor said to us, I said, so he looks like he's waking up. Do you think he has a concussion? And he said, "Um, I think it's worse than that. Um, We think that he's got, uh, or we know that he's got paralysis. Um, from the waist down, he's not able to move his legs or um, anything. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, he looks like he's fine. His arms are moving. And he said, I know, but when we have a spine injury, that's the first thing we check for. And, um, you know, right now we're not getting any response from, you know, below the waist. And um, and I was just hysterical. You can only imagine, as was my husband. And so I was just talking to the doctor and I said, okay, so, what does this mean? Like he's, he's paralyzed. And he said, you know, it could be temporary um, because we can't find the injury. We can't find where he's broken his neck, his spine. I mean, we can't find anything, which is very strange to us because typically, you know, we can find where something's cracked or broken or whatever, and then we can pinpoint the paralysis. But right now we can't. So it could just, we don't know. And we can't answer that for you. And I said, okay, then tell me this he'll be okay. Like he'll, regardless of paralysis, he will pull out of this. And he said, yes, absolutely. And I said, okay. And here's, here's what he said to me, you know, again, you know, I, I have my child and my heart goes out to anybody on this radio station who's ever lost a child. And, um, I, and he was maybe 19 at the time, 20, um, getting ready to go into the fire Academy at Texas A&M university. And, um, I said, okay. Um, what does this mean? And that's the, those are the words that have changed my life. And the doctor looked us in the face and he said, you just have to take this for what it is because we don't know what's going to happen. But that I need you to leave here tonight knowing that this may be your new normal. It just may be your new normal. Your son might be in a wheelchair, but you still have your son with you. And the crazy part to that entire story is that's what I needed to hear because at the end of the day, and any moms out there who have children or who have lost a child, it's like, I don't care what condition that child's in. I love them, and as long as they can be with me, whether it would have been in a wheelchair or whatever it would have been, it just would have been our new normal, you know, and, and as a family, we would have dealt with it. And so we never went through, uh, I want to I want to tell the audience that, that after 12 days, um, and literally at day 10, 
nothing was happening, and we were getting ready to send him to Houston. Uh, Christopher Reeve Foundation has got a program down there that we were going to put him in Houston uh, in an experimental program because nobody could figure out why. I mean, they knew he'd had a spine and a neck injury, obviously, from doing dumb stuff at a party, but, but, but what they didn't know is what the root of it was. So, um, And so every day, what got me through those days is, number one, I could stay at the hospital and talk to my son, who was just getting more depressed by the day, you can only imagine. Um, and number two is just, okay, this is just going to be our new normal, to the point where I was talking to realtors that we were going to need to buy a bigger house. It had different kinds of doors, wheelchair. It just didn't matter because I was so grateful that my son was with me and with us and that we could still have him, that it was just our new normal. And so um, within 12 days, he started getting his feeling back, and it was miraculous at about day 15, um, he actually walked out of the hospital. And to this day, nobody can explain it one way or the other. I, I think it was God's grace. I really do. But what I know as a mom and what, is, what I've used, that was my defining moment in life. That was the day that I thought, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens, whether it's with a business or it's with somebody I love or it's a family member or it's a friend, because stuff in life comes up. But if, if you can accept the challenges of life, which that would have been a big challenge for myself, my son, and my family, but you can be grateful that you still have that person or that job or that situation and that you can just accept the fact that this just may be your new normal and adjust how you deal with things and how you deal with the situation, then it makes that situation that might have looked so bad and so hopeless, it just, I don't know, I, I can't even explain the freedom that the doctor gave me when he said, this just may be your new normal. And I've used it with many other things in life. I mean, I wish, I wish somebody would have given me that advice before my father passed away nine years ago. Because I was devastated and I didn't know how I would get through life without being able to talk to him every day. And maybe if, if, if I could have just told myself, this is just my new normal, I would have dealt with it differently and, and uh, more, more productively. And so, you know, not everything in life that gets thrown at you is, is meant to devastate you. I think it's just meant to adjust potentially what our new normal is. Yeah, it's in, so, yeah, um, three words, right? It's it's just three yeah. words, your new normal mm -hmm. and how powerful that is. Right. And I just, you know, I put that out there and I've shared it with, it's in the book and I talked to a lot of friends about it. I'm like, this, you know, this, this may be this incident in your life or your business or your marriage. It may not have been there. It may not have been put there to disrupt you and destroy you. It might have been put there to adjust you to what your new normal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I hope that that gives somebody out there listening um, some encouragement. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Um, and thank you for sharing that. That's a you know that's a very personal I got, story. I, I got Lisa. tears rolling down my face oh, right now. Gosh. I got every time I tell this story, well, I just cry. Yeah, I, I bet. Cry I'm so grateful, but I'm also it was a life lesson that um, will stay with me until the day I die. Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, one of one of my favorite quotes from the book um, because I just love the question of what we you know what do you stand for is you know it's not what yeah. you sell it's what you stand for yeah. and right. um i i i love to talk to my kids about that just stand for something right there's something. so many things mm -hmm. out there in the world that need attention um right. what would you say is that um you know that that brings me to wanting to know what is there a motto a single motto that you live by and maybe it's that you know 
you, you mentioned color outside the lines. Um, you know, you talk a lot about overcoming fear in the book. But is there a motto that you live by that that has to do with you know what you stand for specifically? Yeah, I mean, thank you. Um, y- you know, the, it's really it's not it's 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 not what you sell; it's what you stand for. And the reason is is that, um, and it isn't what you do; it isn't your actions; it's what you stand for. And I used to tell my sales teams that in the automotive industry, you know, guys, we sell this kind of car, a Fiat, right, or an Alfa Romeo. But at the end of the day, people don't buy what you're selling, the actual product. People buy us. I used to tell them we're not in the automotive industry, right? Our job is to solve transportation issues for people. And really, most of these cars look the same. And so our clients will buy what, you know, who we are as an organization, the, all of the charity work we did, I mean, an enormous amount of charity work we did when I owned stores um, because we wanted to give back to a community that gave so much to us. And so I think it's a great business model. I think it's a great life model, but I think this is kind of a business session. And um, whatever your business may be, um, you'll always have lots and lots of competition. I don't care what that is. But I think that if you as a business owner, an entrepreneur, um, a woman, uh, whatever it is, if, 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 if you wrap your, your belief system, which mine was to empower women, um, so we always had women events at my dealership, and, you know, we supported the causes. I was um, uh, chair for Go Red this year. You know, I had 900 women in the room. Laura Bush was my keynote speaker. Um, you know, I mean, I was just all about women philanthropy and supporting women. And so it was, it's what I stood for. So it didn't really matter what we sold, what kind of cars, because the majority of the people would do business with us because they, they, they wanted to support what we supported and vice versa. And I think that that's where women are really powerful in business is that we want to support each other. And so I, I was never out telling people, hey, buy a car from me. Hey, buy a Fiat from me. Like, no. What I told them was is that this is what we support, and I'm going to support you, and I hope that at some point that you can support me and my business. And I think that that's why women are such amazing uh, clients, because we are so collaborative, and we so, so try to prop each other up and support each other. And I've been very grateful through my entire career. I've got a tribe of women. It wouldn't matter what I'm selling or what I'm doing. They're supporting it and vice versa. You know, and I just... I, I think women, I think we're such a powerful consumer base. I mean, we are the, we, you know, we influence 85 to 90% of all purchases, influence, right? Right, right. there's statistics so, to, to support what you're yes, saying. Yes. Yes. And so if, if, if we would come together and support businesses that, that support women causes, that, that, that have, actually have women in the C-suite, that actually support women entrepreneurship, I think that the women's movement would get pushed forward a lot faster. Yeah. Because we have the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that we always utilize it. And so that's part of the work that we do at EBW 2020 is that's to help women uh, utilize that power of the purse. Right. Listen, you. I, I read that you co-founded um, another organization, Women Impacting the Nation. Can you yes. tell me about that? What's the mission there? Well, um, that, that was that was quite a long time ago, but it, it was it was to talk to women about becoming politically um, active. Uh, it was nonpartisan, Republican or Democrat, but just to really encourage women to um, to, to get involved yeah. in, in leadership, whether it was the school board or the county commission or you know the White House, whatever it was, and. You know, we, we did it for a year or two. Um, there were other women impacting the nations, but I had 
I had uh, done it in our hometown, which is a very politically active town. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really great. But I'll, I'll tell you, my walk away from that is, is that women are not that interested in, 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 in elected, uh, being elected. I mean, I don't want to 80-20 rule, but the reason that there aren't more women in power isn't because women are not amazing leaders. They just don't want to. They don't like the garbage. They don't like the... Um, the back and forth, uh, and frankly, they don't like the politics that much. Right, right. Um, you know, women are so much more collaborative. And so uh, another project, another one I was involved with was the White House Project with Marie Wilson. You know, we did a lot of work with them, too, and just wonderful organizations. But um, women just don't choose to be as politically active as men, and we can see that when we look at our government today. Yeah, well, I, I ho- hope that changes because I think that's a key uh, thing that needs to happen, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, Under, really for, the, for there to be the change the we want to see. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that will contribute to that is, you know, I want to talk about your book for a minute. So you and uh, I want to mention the co-author um, of the book is Renee Bangelsdorf. Yeah. I hope I pronounced yes, that correctly. Good. You did. Yes. Good. And uh, it is called uh, Crushing Mediocrity, 10 Ways to Rise Above the Status Quo. One of the things I loved about the book was, was the stories that you shared. That's always a great way to write a book because people reading it then, you know, they they can connect to the people and the circumstances that they've been through, yeah. and it really helps them to understand and, and remember, you know, what these what these ten things you're you're trying to help uh, women do to to encourage them really to just not be okay with. Um, you know the status quo and 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 what is normal mm-hmm. because they're capable of of greatness, right? So right, the right. more that those messages are getting out there, and your book is such a great example, I think the more women will pursue um, roles where they can make policy and and be in leadership so. political positions. Um, I hope so. Yeah, tell me what you. So when we talk about empowering women, what is it? Mm-hmm. What do you see um, as the greatest result? Should we reach, you know, high, high numbers of women leading? What, what do you think is the what, or I, let me ask you this: What's the one thing you hope to see um, in the world when we reach? Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about 2020 when we reach a billion women right. empowered in 2020. What is the one thing that that really you dream about seeing as a result of that happening? I have two things I dream about seeing. Um, one of them is gender equality. Mm-hmm. And then um, my work with EBW 2020 has really given me much more of a global perspective than I've ever had before. And um, my heartbreak around the world, as American women, we have it really good. We have it really, really good. And we just spent some time um, with the United Nations Foundation at the Girl Up Summit. And they've got an initiative called Every Girl Be Counted. And there's you know over 10 million girls around the world. And, and I know that number is higher than 10 million. It could have been 20, but... I feel like 10 is the number, but um, that that don't have birth certificates. So they've never been counted. So that way, if they disappear due to uh, sex trafficking or slavery, um, nobody knows they're missing. You can't prove they're gone. And the stories of the girls that came in from around the world, um, it would tell us what's going on in their villages and in their countries. That is my prayer is that, um, you know, it's, it's, it'd be great to have a woman president and it would be great for a lot of things, uh, pay equality and all these things that I stand for. But fundamentally, as a um, citizen of planet Earth, 
Um, my sincere prayer is that we can rescue these girls, um, that every girl in this world could be counted, that, um, that, that they would not be um, under the atrocities that they're under today around the world because it's just not okay. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's hard for me to even lay my head on my pillow at night because, because now when I close my eyes, I think about the girls that I've met from around the world mm. and what's happening to them. Yes. And, and I, I think as a country, we have got to stand up and we have to go to our leaders and they have got to go to the leaders of these countries and say, this is not going to happen anymore. It, it's remarkable to me um, the the enormity of that problem and that issue. And I've learned more about it, you know, through this show. And you're so right, you know, when we're so privileged and fortunate. And to to just have the knowledge that that kind of thing is going on in such a large scale is, it's almost too much. Um, But the problem is that we have the knowledge and we can't do anything about it. And I find when when I go tell these stories, if I'm at a party, people are like, okay, yeah, that's great, Lisa. I'm going to go walk over there. Because people people don't want to hear about it. That's right. That's right. Right? It's sad. It's It's terrible. Yeah, it's too hard. And they don't have to think about it. And I'm just begging the listeners to to check out um, um, the Girl Up Summit and the United Nations Foundation. There's lots of these out there. That's just the ones that we work with. Um, to try to get involved at some level um, and just help these girls have a voice. Right. Listen, we just have a few minutes left, Lisa. I'm I'm going to let you just give um, a a piece of advice to the women that are listening um, that perhaps are stuck. Oh, that are stuck. Um, I think all of us get stuck in life. And what I have found, at least in my personal life, is that I get stuck because I'm afraid. Uh, fear usually sticks me right in my tracks. And whether that's a fear of making a business decision or starting a company or dealing with something with my spouse or even a friend. And so I just want to encourage the listeners out there, you know, the word fearless, like let's be fearless. Well, nobody is fearless. I think so much of what we do in life is based on fear and thank God, or I think there'd be a lot of more wacky stuff in the world if people didn't have a healthy fear factor. But I always want to encourage the women out there and the men that are listening um, that if you could just fear less, fear dot less. I, 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 I give a keynote on the 10 unapologetically fear less tra- I mean, traits um, of women. Like what are the things you could do to fear less? And one of the things I say is, you know, number one trait is that you, number one, you have to identify that it's, it's actual fear that's holding you back. And then number two, you have to, you have to figure out what is your first step? Because the first step is never to conquer it. And I know that when my dad died, I, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I was devastated. And I know there's a lot of women who just lay in bed devastated. Like, you can't even come out of it. I mean, I was there. And the cover's over your head. And I think the first day that I, I kind of came out of some of that is, 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 is when I could just put the covers down on my bed and just lay there. You know, and day number two might just be putting your feet over the side of the bed and just sitting up, you know, and realizing, okay, I've got to conquer this. That's very extreme, but I think in life, I think that we have to move toward baby steps, towards conquering a fear, or to be fearless, or to make a big decision, because big success comes with, with, with taking risks, and um, I've taken a lot of risks, and I have failed a lot of times, and I think that it's just been my tenacity to get back up, that rebel in me, so thank you, yep. that rebel in me <laughs> that just wants to get back up and just fight again 
Um, but, but not everybody's got that in them. And so that may not be how you do it, but I just want to encourage anyone out there who's stuck to fear less, fear dot less, and to take one step every single day. And it might take you 30 or 60 or 90 days, but that's okay. Mm. As long as you're moving forward a little bit every day. Yeah. Lisa, you're such an inspiration. You truly are. I'm so um, honored and thrilled to have had you on the show this afternoon, and, and I'm excited to um, hopefully be working with you and, and get to know oh, you I'll even know. better. Um, I think Thank there's you. some really exciting things coming um, down the line for, for both you personally and, and all of the yeah. organizations that you're involved with. And uh, for Thank the listeners, you. again, I want them to go get your book. I'm going to hand it to my, my assistant here who's sitting beside me. Um, she's a millennial. Just to, just oh, good. To, <laughs> and I told we her, I said, this, we love millennials. I said, they need these messages more than, uh, more than we do. Um, but give the listeners your contact information if someone was listening and wants to get in touch. Yes, uh, my email is lisa at lisacopeland.com. You can order the book at uh, crushingitacademy.com. And if you order it on the website, um, crushingitacademy.com, Renee uh, Bangelsdorf, my co-author, and I will both sign the book, or you can get the book on Amazon. Terrific. Thanks so much, Lisa. Listen, have a a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Uh, Again, our website is women2watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week.